0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
1: This week on the podcast, what can I say? This was a master class in how to build a powerhouse RIA. Peter Malouk has been with uh, Creative Planning for twenty years. He kind of started as a junior person, eventually buying the firm um, for uh, on on a I guess an earnout basis when the then-founder wanted to retire and took what was essentially a $150 million or smaller firm and built it up to a $45 billion powerhouse. If if you want to learn the right way to manage money, to deal with clients, to provide services, to grow a business, then strap yourself in. This is a masterclass. With no further ado, my conversation with Creative Plannings, Peter Malouk. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Peter Malouk. He is the president and chief investment officer of Creative Planning, a firm that manages about $45 billion in assets under management across nearly 100,000 client accounts. He is the only person on Worth's list of 100 most powerful people in global finance who actually advise clients. He was listed number one on the Barron's Top 100 Independent Advisors for three consecutive years. And he is the author of the book, The Five Mistakes Every Investor Makes and How to Avoid Them. Pina Malouk, welcome to Bloomberg. It's great to be here. Good to see you again, Barry. Uh, I've been looking forward to having this conversation with you. We spoke briefly at a conference in September, but that was so short, 20 minutes, a half hour, just doesn't get it done. And and we should be able to wrap this up by dinner time. And I'm going to get to every question I have for you. I have to start with your career because it's a little unusual. You get a JD, MBA, so a legal degree and a business degree from the University of Kansas in 1996. What what was your career plans? Where did you think you would go with that?
2: So I didn't have any career plans. A lot of people look at my college education history and think there was some master, master plan or I think I'm perceived as the, as a strategic planner when it comes to to business. And the amount of just good fortune and luck along the way is is tremendously underestimated. i for sure. When I was doing an uh, undergrad, I just took business, just took business because I thought I liked business. And I added other majors that were interesting to me. And then I you know, got an MBA because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And the same thing with the law degree. There was a joint program at University of Kansas where I went. and, and so I did both. So I came out of college with a bunch of degrees but I still, even leaving uh, campus and heading back uh, back home, I had no idea what I was gonna do.
1: And and somewhere along the lines, you were involved with used record stores? <laughs> Tell me about that, because so. in my misspent youth, I used to haunt used CD stores looking for cheap albums and, and discs. Um, that were used. What what brought you to that space? So I, you know, I don't
2: know where this entrepreneurial thing came from. I know my mom really encouraged it when I was younger, and I remember uh, always having a paper route, which meant you know I couldn't drive a car when I had it. I was twelve, so my my dad you know drove the paper route, and I, I threw the oh you weren't on out. the back of a bike tossing, <laughs> right.
1: tossing it out. No, that's how that's how. Uh, so in not. suburban New York, that's how you I, when I had a paper route. It was a bike with a You would put a bunch of baskets on, and you would go down the street flinging papers both ways. Yeah, I thought they only did that in movies. No, 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 no that was... <laughs> was real. But that's when you're no, in a tight suburban that's... neighborhood. You sound like you were in a little more spread out. Spread
2: area. out. I, I'm in Kansas, so a spread out suburban neighborhood. Uh-huh. Like at one house to another, you'd get you'd get worn out sometimes. <laughs> so I just sit out the back of a station wagon and, and throw and throw the newspapers. Uh, then I had a, a lawn mowing business, and then I had a DJ business. I loved music. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the music stores was probably the the thing that was the biggest manifestation of what I really enjoyed and having a business. And I had started that while I was in college and it had, you know, but pretty much gone bankrupt by the time I got out.
1: So you really begin your career at creative planning in 1998. What capacity did you join the firm? And this was, by the way, a much, much smaller firm at the time. Right. They it
2: was it had been started by uh, three guys in the insurance business and they had an insurance arm and they mainly did disability insurance for physicians. And one of them was really into investing like all the way back in the early eighties, you know, when I was in, in grade school and he, um, so he started creative planning as a sister company and had, you know, maybe a few dozen clients basically uh, using uh, American funds, mutual mm-hmm. funds and, and doing planning with, with, uh, you know, by hand, you know, I remember when I took over, look looking at the plans. I mean, there was no, uh, internet back then and, and great technology.
1: We, we take things like Money Guide Pro for granted. Yeah, the I mean, software today really lets you dig deep and, and come up with a lot of options. Yeah. I mean, technology literally lets you scale in a way you never could before in every in
2: every business. But mm-hmm. Just being born in now, you could do all these things that you could have never done a long time ago, no matter how brilliant you were. And uh, I, I had worked for somebody for two years, just advising this physician and his practice. And at the same time, a couple years after that, I started working with advisors doing wills and trusts and uh, that sort of advice for them.
1: Putting putting that legal degree to work. That's
2: right. So n- never been in a courtroom uh, for for anything ever with the practice of law, but I enjoyed helping people, hey, you've, you've got this problem, you want to fix it, you, you probably hate dealing with lawyers, I'm going to make this easy, it's going to take a few days, it's going to be a flat fee, I'm going to explain it in English. And that really took off. A lot of advisors started to use me. I really learned a lot from a lot of those advisors. A lot of them were amazing. A lot of them were terrible. Um, A lot of them were brilliant, but did the wrong thing. And and a lot of them uh, always did the right thing. Um, And then creative planning at the same time, their financial planning team had left to start their own firm. They asked me to come in and would I take on that department? I looked at it and thought, you know, I can do this in two days a week. It was pretty straightforward. So I was doing that from 1998 to 04. And at the same time, I was taking care of maybe a hundred other advisors, clients uh, doing estate
1: planning. So now it's 2004 and you say, I have an idea. Yeah. Let's buy the firm. So first question is, what what motivated that light bulb in 04? By the way, before the financial crisis, but not too long after the dot-com implosion. Right. You know, the, the markets had only bottomed, let's call it October 02 and then March 03.
2: Right. I mean, I'd come right into the industry uh, basically when I was running creative plannings, you know, a few dozen clients. During that period, you had the tech bubble and you had nine eleven, So the markets were just, you know, a disaster um, during that period. And the light bulb going off, if you really think about it, here I am for six years. I'm doing financial planning and investments for some people. And I'm doing estate and tax advice for other people. And you would think the light bulb would have gone off sooner, right? That, hey, maybe people would like this if it was all together, right? right. And so... Uh, I knew three things. I, I knew I wanted to be an independent advisor, and I, I knew that I, I was not comfortable with dual registration. You know, creative planning was duly registered at the time. And oh, And you know, back really? then, that was very normal. I mean, right. Was, that
1: was, you know, hey, listen, back yeah. then, RIAs were relatively yeah, nobody, new. Nobody knew what that was. And, and, and people were just adding it to brokerage firms as, oh, let's offer these services. Exactly right. I mean, it was innovative to
2: even be an RIA at all at right. that point. Um, and I, I was very uncomfortable as, as an attorney to build a, maybe a complex estate plan with a charitable trust, irrevocable trust, and then find out an annuity was in there that wasn't the right kind or shouldn't be there at all. Or but, but they have a giant policy.
1: commission built right. in, and that's why they get sold, right? Yeah.
2: And so you go in, you do the legal, and then that advisor might do things that aren't ideal. So I, I wanted a firm that was independent, didn't sell its own products, uh, was able to combine all those things in one place, and most importantly, could take each client and, and change the portfolio Per their situation. And so I went to all my clients, including creative planning and said, you know, I'm going. this is what I want to do. And the owner of creative planning was basically like he had had those two former partners, one had died very young, one became disabled very young. And he said, you know what, I've had enough of this, you know, if you want to buy. If you want to take over creative planning, go ahead. And, so did uh, you
1: do this yourself? Did you bring in partners? Did you bootstrap it? How, how did this transaction- Well, I mean, we're talking about a firm that had a couple hundred thousand of revenue. There was, I mean, it was- right. So it wasn't a multi-million dollar No, no. I mean, we're-,
2: we're there And it basically made monthly payments for a few years and it, mm-hmm. was, it was over. It was not- We're talking about a few dozen clients. And so what was really the advantage for me was I didn't have to go create- from scratch. An RA from scratch. There was right. one there. I already knew those those clients. Right. And so I could skip this like six month period of figuring all that out and get
1: on with it. Even even more. It's like 18 yeah. months by the time mm-hmm. you're done That's with right. everything. We yeah. did hours from scratch and you find yourself spending an enormous amount of time with lawyers and accountants and compliance people just to launch the firm. Right. So you bypass that. So now it's 04, four oh five. You're a hundred million dollars in assets. Yeah. When do things really start to scale up? You're now forty five billion. That's a big jump. You know, it was it was really instant in terms of
2: percentage growth. I mean, every year it seemed it was thirty to fifty percent or thirty to one hundred percent growth, and it's never really stopped. I mean, there've been a couple little more than that, and a couple years a little below that. I mean, the numbers change. Obviously, you know, three years ago where it. 18 billion and now we're at almost 45. That seems crazy, but it might even be a slower growth rate than when we went from 100 to 500. I think what we were doing in the beginning was very innovative and, and it doesn't sound like it today. To have a firm that was you know dropping its dual registration was totally independent. We were using ETFs. I remember hearing from uh, Van, our Vanguard rep that we had larger holding of indexes than any independent RIA. I remember hearing that in 09. or. Wow. I remember having to explain what an ETF was to clients, what passive <laughs> investing was, <clears throat> and um, then we were doing the legal and tax and all of that in one place. The way we delivered it was very efficient, and we were we were doing including the planning without a separate fee back then if you're reading all the financial stuff it said this is stupid no one will value it if you do it for free and you always have to charge and so there were just a maybe six or seven things we were doing that no one else was doing that today a lot of people are doing um, but the difference is today that's not enough you right. know, today you have to be more specialized you have to be faster you have to cost less uh, you have to have much, much more credentialed people. It's gotten way more competitive. You know, if I had started this today, it wouldn't have worked, right? So I think that back then it was very unique. It was, it was very on the front end of things, and it allowed us to build a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, momentum. And you have a, a colleague that that sent me a wonderful article about cumulative um, advantage, which is you start to one of the That's things right. that people want in this business is they want to feel safe. You know, I mean, you, you if you're looking at hiring an advisor. It's sort of like a restaurant. You know, we're, we're here in New York City. The way I picked where I was eating last night is I went to TripAdvisor. A TripAdvisor tell me where to eat last night, right? So part of it is probably gonna go to a pretty good place. Mm-hmm. And the other part is I'm probably not gonna throw up, right, <laughs> I'm probably not. it's probably not gonna be horrible. And I think people look at advisors the same way. I think they want to feel like, okay, I'm at a place that's pretty safe. Okay, you know, this place has lots of clients, big clients, pretty sophisticated, probably did a lot of due diligence. I I feel safe there. I'm probably going to do all right. I'm probably not going to have a really bad outcome. This is just the way. So I think as you as we're sitting in this world today, people have been at 9/11, the tech bubble, 0809, Bernie Madoff. Just there is so much crap happening, right? If you're an investor, you're really looking at at this landscape and going, you know what? The guy with 200 million dollars makes me a little nervous. Huh. Um, and now, not everybody thinks that there's a path for the guy with two hundred million dollars. Sure, but there are going to be some people that person encounters that goes, you know, when you're bigger. Or they might not use those words, but that's, but what, that's they're, what they're thinking. They're think- I had a lot of people that didn't sign up with me uh, in the first few years that signed on years later. Like say, my mom and dad. I've been calling you president. Is that right? Good enough. Yeah, CEO, I am the CEO, pre-
1: chief investment officer, chairman. Is there a preferred title? I really, it doesn't matter. Yeah. But but you are the head honcho at Creative Planning, let's which is that. a like, like forty five billion. Can I call you forty five billion dollars? Is that are you just very about there? close? Yeah, it depends on I guess depends on when this broadcast. What's going on? <laughs> That's right. right. Depends on where the market <laughs> right. closes. Um, so let's talk about those numbers because they're crazy. When you when you took over the firm in oh four. It was It was 100 and change, $100 million, mm. not a lot of firm. Funds, how do you scale up that AUM from a few million dollars to almost $45 billion? Well,
2: I think you, you have to have a couple different things. So I think that one, you have to ha- have a sound investment philosophy that's kind of worked out for people, right? You're not going to get through all of those things and have your clients referring other clients and aggregating their assets with you unless you deliver uh, mm-hmm. on your promises. So one, you have to have uh, an investment approach that works. I think second, uh, you have to have more than that. Um, and I, and so we we have more than that. We have planning and legal and tax and trust services and institutional services and all of those things. Um, third, you have to have the people. And I, I think this industry, and I've spoken about this a couple of times before with you, the people in this industry are tremendously uh, underrated, and I think they're viewed as interchangeable. And if you watch the behavior of a lot of financial services firms, they view the people as interchangeable. Like you look at some of these firms now, there's a lot of press around them preparing for the next recession. At low rates, they're not going to make as much money holding money. So what do they do? A lot of them aren't firing their bottom performers. They're firing their highest compensated people, which you know presumably are their highest compensated people because they rose to levels- Highest performers. Yeah, they're sure. the highest performers. And they go in and go, oh, well, we're going to fire all those people, which obviously the assumption is that other people will just naturally make that work out. I don't hold that view at all. I, I think that, you know, when I have a, a I'm looking for healthcare for someone in the family or myself, or I'm looking for a lawyer, I do not view all physicians sure. or lawyers equally. But this industry really views people as equal. And I never have. I mean, from the very, very first hire- I knew the importance of people and I've personally witnessed and received the consequences of mostly wonderful hiring and, you know, a couple of really bad hires. And if you, I attribute almost, you know, a huge percentage of the success to getting the right type of people and really the biggest grief I've had in my career to one or two people I hired that were mistakes. How how many employees are you up to now? About 680.
1: So, at a certain point, you're no longer interviewing every single person, right?
2: You, no, I'm, inter- I'm interviewing them all, but I, I you're, I'm, you
1: you're the final check off. Fi- yeah, decides. that's
2: a better way to put it. I mean, I'm not running. The, I mean, before they're getting to me, they've been through a background check, a right. compliance check. They've they've interviewed with the, the a talent acquisition team, the head of their department, usually somebody else. Then they're coming to me. But I would say, you know, one in three is not getting past me. So really, even it's after that high. even after all of that, wow, um, it's just for. I have a view of the firm as a whole. Um, And I have a, you know, sometimes if you've got a head of department, they really have a need. Right. Right. That you, you have this, you want to fill it. Right. So you're interviewing somebody and you're looking for reasons to hire them. Right. And I'm really looking for somebody and going, if this doesn't work out a year from now, why is that? What is it about this person I'm interviewing that's not going to feel uh, that could be the reason for that. i, I got to look at the investments the same way. I'm looking at a new investment. I'm, I'm saying, uh, if this blows up in my face, right, I've got to explain this to clients a year from now or 10 years from now, what What was the scenario that made that happen? And so I'm, I'm trying to think my way through uh, those sorts of things. Sometimes the person's a wonderful person, but I don't think they're going to be satisfied in that role. Mm-hmm. They're taking they're switching under the wrong circumstances. There was one person that interviewed with us from another firm, and he just was so treated badly at the other firm. And I, I really do not don't want to hire somebody that's leaving something. I want to hire somebody that's coming to something. We ought right. to be hiring him a couple of years later. But uh, I'm looking at more of those things and and than I am all the things that have already been figured
1: out by others. I've had a number of CEOs, both from within finance and from other industries, say hiring is the single hardest thing they do yeah. and it feels sometimes like the outcome can be random. People that, all right, that person will work out and they're become a superstar or someone they're convinced is gonna be perfect for the role and it doesn't work out. Do you think hiring is is that challenging and that important?
2: Well, that that important you can't for you sure. really can't overstate how important it is and, and the positive and negative side of, of this business. On the um, randomness, I don't think it's random. I think you're going to have some random random outcomes, mm-hmm. but I think our hiring process is probably more likely to have success than, say, another one. And there's probably somebody that is more likely to have success than we are. So I think there are certain things you can control that are going to narrow the field of outcomes. I had uh, a person who, at the time, had a much bigger uh, firm than me, had said had, had told me about hiring that he looks at the world and he "There's a so, there's a a social curve out there. Uh-huh. There's some crazy person that's gonna screw up your firm. There's some malicious person. There's some psychopath, you know, whatever percentage of the population fits those things. And then there's all these wonderful people, but they're not bright. There's bright people that aren't wonderful. And he's like, uh-huh. I'm looking at this whole social curve and when and I'm trying to keep the bad part. You know, that standard deviation that's you know way off on the right. I'm trying to keep that away from my firm and I'm trying to get the other end. And I thought that was an interesting way to look at it. You you hiring is not random like just pulling somebody off the street you can really do a lot of things that are objective Mm -hmm. and some that are subjective to really narrow the range of outcomes you're going to have there's still going to be surprises but i will tell you every year we have less surprises uh than we've had before and i think we've just gotten better at, at identifying all those things that derail somebody and part of it's there's every every culture has something different our culture is a very rapid pace it's a very high energy culture um Very high expectations. Sometimes you can have somebody that's brilliant and wonderful, but it's just not, that's just not their style, right? And so some of this is stylistic too. You can screen for some of that.
1: So you mentioned uh, you work with Vanguard. I think you also work with DFA. Is that correct? DFA, BlackRock,
2: State Mm -hmm. Street.
1: So you basically, we do the same thing. Yeah. You, You basically have a bias towards passive, but not 100% purely passive. Is that fair?
2: That's fair. And then we use a lot of alternatives for our clients that have $5 million or more with so us. So
1: that's a question I had for you later on, but we might as well talk about it now. Private equity is hot as a pistol. As we work our way towards some of the larger, more sophisticated family offices and ultra high net worth investors, they're very interested in alternatives. How do you reconcile, hey, look, we're passive over here but we're going to put some money in with alternatives they're a little pricey and we don't exactly have a lot of transparency into things but some of the returns have been really good how how can you reconcile those two
2: well i don't i don't think i i mean to me it's i don't have to reconcile the bond market and the stock market they're different markets True. and they have different <laughs> outcomes and so i don't view it as conflicted you know whatsoever i think that i believe uh that the U.S. large market, international markets are, are generally efficient or mm-hmm. efficient enough that I'm not going to outsmart them, right? I know your firm feels the same way. So I'm just not going to play that game, right? I'm going to figure out what the client needs, what return they're trying to hit, how much volatility they can handle to get there. And I'm going to create some mix that I think has the highest probability of creating that outcome. And you know, when I add bonds, my expectation is the bonds are going to underperform.
1: Underperform right. equity. Right. Uh, so I mean I although we could point out that there have been long periods of time, these past three decades, yeah. where bonds did really well versus equity. Yeah. But in general, right? Most of our
2: clients, their their timeline is multi decade. Right. And the odds they're going to underperform with bonds are very high. Yet, sure. Yet we introduce bonds into the portfolio. We do that because they might have short term income needs we got to make sure we can deliver that to them even if there's an 0809 crisis or a tech bubble or 911 it's not about you know maximum performance to in- introduce the bonds you're ju- you know you're introducing something that will probably underperform in exchange for making sure we don't blow up the portfolio by withdrawing from stocks when they're down right, right. what
1: so, what about the behavioral side of i know a number of um, people who advocate a 100% equity portfolio which in theory does well until you hit an 08, 09, where things get cut in half and people have a tendency to jettison stocks at the worst possible moment at the lows and then they miss the whole recovery. How do bonds fit into the behavioral side of a portfolio? I really think that behavior,
2: most of it, can be controlled through education and empowerment. Mm-hmm. So I think if you're a pure money manager, I think getting somebody to get through a 50% drop is going to be pretty tough. Sure. But if you're seeing them throughout the year and you're educating them on, hey, you you're 100% stocks or you're 90% stocks. If the market goes down 50, you can expect to go down 50, maybe more, You know, depending on what other, other asset classes we have, some asset classes, whether it's international emerging markets or small cap or whatever. Um, and here's what's going to happen. And here's why the dividends are enough to meet your needs. And so you don't need to worry about it. And here's historically what's happened. If you're having those discussions all the time, then when it happens, you're more likely uh, to get through it. But I think the reality is most people can't afford that. So even if right. you're sitting with a, a couple and it's a, a doctor and he's sixty-eight and he's got four million dollars because uh, she and her husband have been saving for forever and um, you know they need a couple hundred thousand a year they can't be all stocks because right. if the market goes down at half the dividends are not enough to meet their needs so almost everybody has to have bonds in their portfolio you know the, even the top one percent now when you get to the top one one thousandth of one percent they don't need bonds in their portfolio right, right? the dividends really are enough. And uh, they are more focused on even tying it up more than markets with you know things like alternatives. So for me, bonds are about how, how much bonds do I need to meet their needs if something goes wrong in the short run, and then it's stocks for the long run.
1: And what about, since you mentioned this in terms of, of income, what about people who are living in high-tax states yeah. where there is a fairly robust municipal bond market that can generate tax-free income?
2: Well, I think that the municipal bond market's completely distorted now because of what's pension plans having to allocate to bonds and the aging uh, population of people that are in those pension plans Mm -hmm. uh, and the tax law really pushing money to bonds. It's very hard uh, to take a client today and say, let's go put. 30% Thirty percent of your money in municipal bonds
1: today. was that an option twenty five years ago? Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I think that I think three years ago, you know, <laughs> it, it, was, it was really it was it was an option. I think that when you're now where you're at, it's it's just you can't justify it. Huh. You you look at the the dividend on stocks and and uh, you compare it to uh, bond yields, and it's it's hard.
1: You and I had a conversation over the summer about the acquisition space that I found fascinating. And I wanted to um, delve back into that because, quote, it's the hottest it's ever been and possibly the hottest it will ever be. It's just bonkers right now. I don't know where the top is, but it ain't going to get a whole lot better than right here. I'm paraphrasing, but it's pretty close to what you said. Why is m a in the registered investment advisory space so hot today?
2: I think you have a lot of different things. So first, I think you see this rotation uh, institutional investors moving money out of hedge funds where they've looked historically and said, hey, hedge funds haven't done that great for us over the last 20 years, but these other alternatives have, uh, in many cases outperformed the market for us. And so they're rotating to those and one of those asset classes is private equity. Mm-hmm. So you have the big funds are bigger than ever. I mean you just you can't go a month or even a week and not see about a big private equity family raising their biggest fund ever. Right. So that's number one. The big. In, have in go-
1: fact, McKinsey, the data point I just was reading about, McKinsey it said by the end of 2017, that calendar year, private equity had raised 750 billion in new funds uh, and fresh capital. That's yeah, a lot of money. It's
2: crazy. So the big have gotten bigger. The second is there's a lot more private equity funds. There's now over 8,000 private equity funds. There's wow. way more private equity funds than there are stocks. <laughs> um, so so we have more funds with more money. So that's number one, right? Just a bunch, just this huge slosh of liquidity out there. Second, we have very, very low interest rates. And when private equity goes in and buys a business, they don't usually just write a check. They usually do the same thing a real estate fund when they does, when they buy a property, they use leverage. So they're borrowing money to buy uh, the firm, right? The, the company they're buying. And so if interest rates are lower, they can obviously pay more, just like your listeners can buy more house if the mortgage is lower right so you have very low interest rates more funds bigger funds uh and high net worth investors are starting to move more to private equity too so all there's all that money over there now what do they want they want to be in an industry that is growing fast Mm -hmm. has recurring revenue has built in inflation hedge um where people are sticky uh, and where there's a need for consolidation, right? Where they can take, you know, Mary over here, he's doing a pretty good job, and Joe over there, who's doing a pretty good job. But together, wow, they could really be impressive because Mary's good at this and Joe's good at that. Well, what checks the boxes on all of those, like, those things about well, the RA space?
1: Sure, money is sticky, market goes up, there's your inflation hedge. Yeah. And uh, it's a recurring quarterly revenue stream, although I think um, a handful of places are annual, a handful of places are monthly, but for the most part, it's a quarterly um invoicing right and they compare that to all the other areas of the
2: financial space where there's more client turnover and people leaving and they're going you know what this is the space to be in and not what a coincidence the space to be in is the space that's really in its early stages you know there's a lot of room to improve some of these places so you have this huge loss of money with very low interest rates going into uh... a space that is attractive for a bunch of you know fluke reasons and all this timing comes together And you now have private equity coming into this space um, to to buy up firms. And the other thing is they've been very successful at it, right? So somebody who's just built a $500 million firm or a $10 billion firm is probably not the person, usually, right, Mm -hmm. to run a much, much bigger firm. And they know that. And they don't want to do that. Like, I know I don't want to run a publicly traded company, right? Right. So I've been approached several times about, hey, you guys should go public. That's never happening with me. Really, I've got got clients that are uh, CEOs, CFOs of publicly traded companies. That they are not happy. No, and I am very focused on my quality of life. And I just I look at them as they just look like they're aging every (laughs) every review. They're aging twice as fast as all my other clients. So
1: so back up a sec because this is really a fascinating digression. If most companies when they go public, they're going public for one of two reasons. Reason number one. They need capital to either grow or make acquisitions or some other financial engineering that's part of their long-term business plan, or two, they and their staff and their outside investors, typically venture capitalists or whoever, uh, are looking for an exit. Yeah, you don't seem to have either of those issues.
2: No, I I don't. So that would be another reason I would I would never do that. So
1: so. And you are still the the main owner, the sole owner of-, of?
2: Sole one today. Sole
1: yeah. one, really. Mm-hmm. At, at what point does that change? Because I know we went through a whole process of setting up a path to equity for employees. You guys have been growing so crazy fast for so long that that hasn't really come up to uh, the fore yet.
2: No. I mean, that's part of it. I have a lot of partners in our affiliated entities, so I have partners with the, the law firm and the- the benefits firm and the 401k firm and the and the, the
1: those are all separate corporate yeah, entities. It's all
2: creative planning entities, all operating out of the same place, all helping the same clients. So once there's been stable growth, I've always you know had partners and favored them in those areas. I mean, creative planning has just been such rapid growth, and it's required so much capital. I mean, it it there's it's never made sense to to do it. I don't know that anyone would have really enjoyed the ride. Um, sure. <laughs> and and what it was going to take. uh financially along the way to do to do the, or the commitments or the, the deferral and the patience uh, to, to do this. Um, but we we were, are considering and have for a long time considered uh, raising money by selling a minority stake to a private equity firm, because mm-hmm. I do think that valuations are high and I do think that uh, the world moves very, very, very fast. And you are going to need money to get through it. If you look at how these big financial firms are doing it, they're doing it by preemptive layoffs. Right, that's that's what uh-huh. they're doing now, and I would like to do it by a preemptive pile of money sitting in the bank, so that no matter what happens, when there's a contraction, that we can go take advantage of that, and that that's what we did in 0809. We grew rapidly through that crisis, and I want to be able to grow rapidly through the next one, which means I not only want to keep my team in force, I want to go find more talented people and focus on getting clients,
1: and not worry about uh, about reserves. So you mentioned 0809. Um, I have to ask, how do you grow in the middle of a crisis where every time you buy equity a week later, or, or a fund or an ETF or anything, uh, a, a month later, it's down 5 or 10 or 15%? How did you manage both existing clients and growth throughout the great financial crisis?
2: So back then, there were only a few of us. And mm-hmm. so I was in every single client meeting uh, of every client of creative planning uh, uh, back then. And a very, very big part of this was education. So when you're doing needs-based investing instead of risk-based investing, so most places are like, well, this is your risk tolerance and here's your portfolio for you or you're this age, here's your portfolio. They have five models, you go to the closest model. We've never done that, even on day one and, and we don't do it today. We've really said, you know, you've got real estate, we're gonna leave that out here. You, you Your belief system doesn't match these, we'll leave them out. You want more of that, it does work for your situation but here's how we're going to cover your short run and your long run and here's all the horrible things that are probably going to happen in the mm-hmm. investment world with your life. Well when you're going through that with people um over and over again they're sticky and remember we were doing their planning we were doing their we were doing a lot of different things for them. And so when they were going through this crisis they were not surprised. I think people panic when things are not aligned with their expectations. Right. And so it was a big shakeup and a lot of people were leaving their advisors and our clients were referring people to us. Now, there were a couple of things we were doing too that I think were very, proven out very quickly, very, very basic things. So we were tax harvesting, for example, which you didn't hear a lot about back then. Mm-hmm. And the other thing we did is we, we we have a feeling we don't balance at the end of the year. We don't balance every quarter. We balance on sharp market drops. Mm-hmm. So let's just take the 08 crisis that you brought up. It bottomed in the beginning of... Uh, It bottomed around March 9th of Mm 09, and the market just those nine days of March had dropped about 30%. We're buying, right? So we're calling our clients and we're buying and we're harvesting. By the end of that month, the market had recovered all of the losses for 09, right? Mm -hmm. Not all, all from 08. It was just up 30 plus percent, right? So if you take just a 70-30 portfolio and you're buying not at the end of the quarter a year, but on when it's dropping and you're harvesting, what do you get? You're not breaking even when the market does four or five years later. You're breaking even. You take It's taking you half the time to get to break even. And you have losses on your tax return. And that creates advocacy, mm-hmm. right? And so that was really the explosion for creative planning was those 500 clients going, you know what? I feel confident to tell my friends. I think there's a lot of people that are happy with their lawyer or their CPA or their financial advisor or their doctor, but they're not positive that they're going to look good if they refer somebody to you, hmm. right? And I think that what you do through a crisis is you get a chance to prove yourself. So I, I really view all of those as tremendous opportunities of, hey, we told you this is the scenario that would happen, here's why you're okay, here's exactly what we're gonna do, and then they see the outcome. They they go from clients to advocates, and that was the turning point for us. And so, you know, you talk about the 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 uh, the power of luck in all of this, and I don't want to say I would root for another oh eight oh nine. I mean, it, it's painful to go through and you, long hours and a lot of stress. And not everybody's not every client's like, "Hooray, I, I get the opportunity here." Huh. Um, but there's no question that without it, creative planning is not what it is today.
0: Hmm.
1: Quite quite fascinating. One last question I have to ask about acquisitions because it circles back to um, your reference that it's the hottest it's ever been. Uh, We met with a bunch of consultants early on, and pretty much the number everybody uses is two x trailing year's revenue or two point two times trailing twelve, and that was you know six seven years ago. You and I had discussed the numbers today that are being used for acquisitions. They don't even remotely resemble that anymore, do they? No, I mean
2: I I think that what's I think what people have figured out is. We've now moved to a level where a lot of these are enterprises, and all anyone cares about now is is the future earnings mm-hmm. uh, of these businesses. And so you can have a $500 million firm that's running on a 10% margin, and you can have a $500 million firm that's running on a 35% margin. They're going to have wildly different uh, valuations um, when a strategic buyer, a private equity buyer comes in. That, that's definitely changed a lot in the last few years. Huh.
1: So so what sort of multiple are you looking at for let's take the average one percent firm, which is now probably a high fee. Uh, I we were playing with numbers the other day and we were about sixty two bips on yeah. average across everything. Yeah. Um but the typical firm is one percent or so and their overhead is primarily their technology, their rent, and their employees. Yeah. What's a reasonable multiple for the average firm on either revenue or profits? Well, revenue is—I don't—I
2: haven't don't even pay attention. No to one, it. Does, yeah, the, no one would pay attention to that. I mean, as a, a great example is, well, I mean, the the expenses of those places could be wildly different depending right. on where their rent is and how do their employees produce on their own and get bigger payouts, or you know, it's very, very wildly different. Mm-hmm. I'd say if you look, you're looking at these five hundred million dollar firms. um the multiples could be as low as five and as high as seven or eight or something. Times profits. Yeah, times profits. Uh, And I think that people are looking at, even the profits isn't enough. Like if the average client is 78 and there's no new clients coming in, you're looking at declining earnings, right? So you would have somebody say, I'm not going to buy this at all, or it's going to be two times or three times earnings. Uh, You could have a firm like yours you know where you're growing, but there's a mojo factor, right? Like right. there's a there's something that that um, could really spark great greater growth. Uh, a different buyer might look at it and go, there might be more risk here, right? And so I think that you've got that is a very big factor, especially when you're looking at these firms that are three hundred million to eight hundred million. Where is it? Totally dependent on one person, or are people tied to other people? What's the average age? Are accounts growing? Are people referring? Are they not referring? So you really need to look through all that. But you're getting to the mid the mid range. You know, when you get up to firms your size, where you're a billion more, you could be talking double digits. Um, and you get to the you know very large firm, you're definitely in the in the double digits. So
1: it, it's much more complicated than we tend to see in the headlines. Way more complicated. Because yeah. you see, oh, so-and-so bought such a company or here's the fifth acquisition yeah. done by this company and they kind of make it, oh, there's this much revenue, here's the multiple, and yeah. this is their seventh acquisition this month.
2: Yeah, I don't think that ever that ever happens <laughs> where, where someone looks at the revenue anymore and makes a decision based off of that.
1: Let's talk a little bit about investor expectations. 10-year bond yields are under 2%. It's hard to look at US stocks and not say they're, let's call it fully valued, richly valued. I don't yeah. I don't know what phrase you wanna use. What sort of future expected returns should investors have today?
2: Well, I think what you can never figure out the stock market completely, but the bond market is largely math, mm-hmm. right? So we, we know we can't replicate in the next 30 years what the bond market did in the last 30 years. Uh, so it, since it's all a function of of where the yield is, I think when you look at the treasury, it sets the tone for everything else, right? If the treasury's under two and corporates are a little bit higher, then our expected return for large stocks is a little higher. Some would argue for small stocks might be a little higher or maybe emerging markets and you you go out that way. So you got to get rid of this double digit return expectation and move yourself into the squarely into the single digit range, somewhere in the mid to, to higher single digits, depending on your allocation of bonds and your beliefs around uh, markets that are certainly not overvalued, like emerging markets or small cap international. And do you believe that they're low valued at a low price now because it's just gone and it's never going to recover, it's done or, right. or or do you think they're at a low price because things are a little messy and they're going to get worked out like they did in the in the U.S.? Um, so you can make your argument, but it's very hard to make an argument for the double digit you know, returns that people were making in the
1: '90s. So uh, a blended portfolio, seventy thirty, including exposure to international. And emerging markets, five, six, seven percent—is that a reasonable? Yeah, I
2: think our projections—we're using a four percent real return, means six percent return, subtract inflation—and we feel pretty comfortable mm-hmm. with that.
1: So that brings up the issue we briefly talked about earlier, which is uh, alternatives, most notably private equity. Yeah, people have a history of saying, "I'm not getting the sort of returns I want, so I'm going to either look for something that perhaps has more risk." Um, and try and achieve those returns. I don't get the sense you look at private equity that way. Or am I am I oversimplifying? No,
2: you're right, and I think this is a point you know I, uh, that we disagree on, right? I think that that when it, when I look at the public markets, I don't think you're going to find a bigger advocate for uh, that. The, those markets are pretty efficient. My entire book, Five Mistakes, is basically about here's all the evidence that you just got to quit market timing, quit right. six stock picking and
1: focus on allocation and discipline. So by the way, you and I completely simpatico with that. Yes. Let, let's see how much space is between us right. on venture capital hedge funds and private right. equity.
2: Now venture capital, I would put it, so I, I think one of the problems with alternative investments is everyone talks about alternative investments like it's one thing. And it's right? not. It's not, it's, it's not. So alternative investor investments is basically an alternative to anything that's not a publicly traded stock or bond mm-hmm. or real estate, right? So. You know, if you've got a listener that owns a duplex that they're running out, well, they're in the alternative investment business, right? right? And so uh, you own a farm and someone's actually farming it. That's welcome to the alternative investment right. business. Direct investment yeah. in real
1: estate or something else.
2: Exactly. And so now when you take alternative investments, we can divide them out into a couple of things. One area we, we agree on, I don't think hedge funds work. Now, why do I not think they work? Is it because of the evidence of the last 20 years that it doesn't work? No, it's not really that. It's because there's evidence that the stock market's fairly efficient. And what is a hedge fund? A hedge fund is basically overpaying somebody to create even more negative tax consequences to trade within the stock market usually, Mm -hmm. usually, right? So now we've got a market that's pretty efficient and we're increasing the taxes and fees and somehow expect to beat that market. It doesn't surprise me, right, that that hasn't worked out well for the overwhelming majority of people that have invested in hedge funds. And you see institutions saying, hey, this doesn't work great we're not doing this anymore and they're taking their money and they're moving it to private real estate and private equity. Now, why are they doing that? Because there is evidence that private real estate and private equity has worked out. So the question is, is it a fluke? Is it an aberration or is it sustainable? Now I think we now have 8,000 private equity funds instead of a few hundred. Right. So it's you're going to have diminishing returns just with all this money chasing businesses. But I think what you're seeing is a fundamental shift in the way that the U.S. economy is running. So like on Monday, I went to Los Angeles and I met two guys that started a keto diet uh, food uh, business and they just sold it for 280 million. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, they're getting 280 million. sold for much, much more than that. Uh, Yesterday, uh, I was in Fargo and I met with somebody who was in the pharmaceutical business that's also getting a nine-figure check. Who did they all sell to? They sold to private equity. Huh. this is something that in my whole career has never happened. Right. And in the last three years, it's happening like crazy. You brought up earlier how it's happening in our the space we happen sure. to be in, the RA space. But it's really happening everywhere. And what you're seeing is these guys that are starting businesses, they get it to a certain size, and they're not the same person to take it to the next level. I believe that good private equity firms are better at taking those firms to the next level than they would be themselves. They know how to institutionalize. They know how to bring in a strong financial team. They they have some sophistication around mergers and acquisitions. Uh, they have a lot more ways to exit. Uh, a good firm can take you public. They can sell you to another sponsor. They can... Sure. Mer- I mean, that's what they do from when they get up in the morning to when they leave is say, how do we take this business, this idea and help grow it? Are there bad apples out there that go in and gut the business and screw it up? And yes, are there complete idiots out there private equity running private equity funds? Of course, but... I don't view it like mutual fund managers, where if one mutual fund manager outperforms the other, it's probably, but not always, due to luck. I think when you see certain private equity funds with persistent outperformance, I do think the fact that private equity fund A has 40 McKinsey consultants that have been doing it since the 80s mm-hmm. is probably going to do better than the one that's you know four blocks away from my office that's like two guys that opened up shop three years ago. They're not the same. Manager... Managers make a difference in the private equity space. So I think you can take that universe of private equity funds and go, who's got the history? Who's outperformed? Why have they outperformed? Uh, is, there, is there is there a repeatable pattern here? And my personal experience of watching my clients, now I still am seeing clients. I see hundreds of clients. And we're, I'm involved with our ultra-fluent practice that's mainly focused on people that have tens of millions or hundreds of millions or, or even more than that. And many, many, many of them got there. Uh, because they built a business to a level and they sold a private equity fund right. and let me tell you when their biggest payout was barry it wasn't their first buyout it's their second really? so what's happening is a private equity fund is coming in and they're taking a, a stake uh, like the recent example I, I talked to you about was somebody had sold a majority interest but the private equity funds want them in there 10 20 because they want them engaged you know those people are the people that got the business to that level and so they still have 20 percent or whatever the business the second sale that's happening four or five years later, almost always in my experience is much, much bigger than the first one, which is the proof that the private equity fund has more than doubled the value of that business when they stepped into it. Now I've seen this in the restaurant business and the consumer staples business and the financial super over and over and over again. I've seen a couple of times where it's not worked out, but the overwhelming majority of the time, the client I'm sitting in front of that finds themselves worth $25 million or $150 million, was never going to get there without the institutionalization of their practice that private equity brought. Now, how does that translate into the private equity investor? Private equity investors participating there. And I don't buy the fee thing either. Like I, when I look at the stock side and I look at the mutual funds, yeah, if you divide out the world of mutual funds, you take the ones that charge one percent more than 1%, they're in the bottom quartile of performers. Sure. And the ones that charge less than 25 basis points are in the top quartile because the market's pretty efficient. Fees matter. Of course, fees matter in the private equity space. If you can get the same performance and pay less, of course, you would want that. But it's not the same thing. I mean, the private equity firm, the good ones, are involved in running the business. Now, the the ones that are not so great, they they just go put money in a firm and go keep doing your thing and we'll sell you three years later. No value added. I think that's thousands of private equity funds. All those a lot of the small ones, that's what they do.
1: So there's a lot less space between our views than you originally imagined. But for academic purposes, let me, <laughs> right, let me right. push back a little bit. Sure. Um, and there's two things that stand out. The first is I heard very, very similar things about hedge funds and to a lesser degree venture capital. Um, we talked about cumulative advantage earlier. Hey, our guys are unique and special. And because of our track record, we get to see the best deal flow. We get access yeah. to the best entrepreneurs. We get, we get, we get. And we heard that about VCs. We heard that about- uh, hedge funds, and it's still very much a fathead, long tail distribution, yeah. a handful of giant winners, which if you have a couple of billion dollars, come on in, we're happy to bring you aboard. Right. Um, so so that's pushback number one. And then pushback number two is sort of the uh, soft bank vision fund idea. Yeah. When you raise $100 billion and you have to put it to work quickly, yeah. pff, you, it, <laughs> you just distort the valuations in the space. We're watching private equity raise almost a trillion dollars a year, and you mentioned eight thousand. I guarantee you that'll be nine and ten oh, and yeah. eleven thousand. Yeah. So how does somebody who says I appreciate the lack of volatility, the non-correlation um to equity, which private equity actually is much more uh much less correlated to stocks than venture capital or or yeah. hedge funds are? And I'm interested in this, but how do I pick out of these Eight, nine, ten thousand funds, and by the way, I don't have a billion dollars. I have twenty-five million or fifty million yeah. to put to work.
2: Well, I mean, first of I all, mean, the hedge funds—they—they they had that argument twenty years ago. We get we're we're smarter and bigger. We're not correlated with this, with that. But I mean, twenty years ago, we we had a lot of evidence that that markets were pretty efficient. I mean, even in early in my career, we had that evidence, and I think all we're seeing is. You know, that they've been called out that, that that's just not true and that they can't beat the efficient markets.
1: Well, in the the argument is in the 80s and 90s, mm. they did. And then once there was this rush of capital and people to hedge fund space, it's, you know, the the whatchamacallit, Jim Chanos has said, I'm always quoting him on this, 30 years ago there were 100 hedge funds, they all created alpha, and now there's 11,000. It's the same hundred hedge funds creating alpha.
2: Yeah, I see a different. I see a different reason. I think when you look at the '80s, there was no internet, for right? sure. So the market really wasn't efficient as efficient, right? Mm-hmm. It just I did. You can't buy the argument in the '80s. You could find mutual fund managers that would outperform and hedge fund managers that would outperform. When the market really became efficient, in the 2000s, all of that stuff went away. I don't think as more hedge fund managers and mutual fund managers came into the space, although that helps make a market more efficient. I think the reality is there's a a kid in a garage in Malaysia that knows everything that that the hedge fund manager does. And so it's game over. Now, all this money going to the private equity space is going to dilute returns, just like all the money going to the real estate space is gonna dilute returns. If you have a bunch more money changing the same amount of property, uh, you're going to have lower expected returns.
1: Higher prices, lower expected returns. more
2: private equity um, firms coming in to buy uh, firms like yours, you now have higher valuations than you did a few years ago just because they're in the space, which means the competition has, by definition, created a lower expected return. As there are only two private equity funds chasing RIAs, they wouldn't have to compete on price so much. They have a better expected return. But the return can still be better than the stock market. And I think in the Mm. private equity space that you can find those firms more likely to outperform way easier than the stock market space if you believe the space is not efficient. I believe the private space is not completely efficient. I believe if, if I bought your firm, my expected return going forward after I paid you some monstrous valuation that you would insist excessive, on. Excessive, absolutely. Right, it would be ridiculous. I would have I would to advise be, you
1: that that was a- I would be a...
2: insulted at what you would tell me for your price. <laughs> but if we did that, my expectation would be I would have a better return than if I invested in the S&P 500. And markets. I just think that's that's huh. the reality of it. And I think you think that.
1: um, To some degree, I mean, the the- you you talk about randomness and a little luck in things working out in the right place. I spent the first 20 years of my career turning money down. Yeah. And then my epiphany was, all right, I'm just sending people out to the wolves to be, you know, having their being shorn. We might as well do this. I'm telling them the right way to do it. I might as well execute it myself. That was quite the aha moment. And if you would have asked me five years ago, hey, you're going to be a billion years in five – billion dollars in five years, I would have laughed at you. But uh, people respond to something that's a little different, a little outside of the box. What you were offering in 04, 05, 06, and through the financial crisis – Nobody else was, or very few people were talking in those terms and offering those services. So, of course, you're going to see faster growth and better returns. The big question that has to be on anybody's mind who's making investments in the RIA space is, how long can this continue to go for? Are we going to see continuing consolidation? Can we continue to pay five and seven and nine times profits to these small companies and expect an above market return or at what point does that become you know just too pricey well i think like let's take a, a
2: business and just assume you paid them 10 times uh earnings okay. and they have a modest growth rate that expected return by itself is higher than the S&P 500 right i mean if you, sure. if you start to do the math yeah. um so it just shows you that that it's not cr- it's not totally crazy now it's the highest it's ever been I don't think I think there's a lot of things that are going to make this party stop. Uh, one is there's going to be fee compression in the industry. Still, it's ongoing and has it, been for a couple of years. I think creative planning has been the largest driver of the hidden fee compression in the industry, which Meaning? is which is hey, we're not just going to manage your money for that fee. We're going to charge you a little bit less than other places, and we're going to do ten times more.
1: And so we're. That's a type of fee compression, right? If so in other words, you're doing planning and you're doing are, you're not charging additional for trust and estates or or you have to pay those lawyers something.
2: So you know, they'll come in and they'll get planning, investment management, when we use alternatives, we don't have a separate fee, we don't have a pooled asset fee, that's all part of it.
1: So now how do you deal with the fact that these private equity firms tend to charge much more than financial planning firms charge? How does that fee in other words, you're just passing along the fee or is it built in? Yeah, it just in? goes
2: straight through, straight through to the client. So it's so, a pass through. You're not yeah, charging them less, tra- but
1: you're not tacking anything on top of it. That's
2: exactly right. And some, sometimes we're able to negotiate breaks for them. But yeah, we're definitely not marking it up. So you're adding some complexity. We have to have a whole other team, uh, but we don't have a separate fee. We give legal advice and do trust funding without a separate fee. We give tax advice without a separate fee. We won't. Prepare a document uh, okay. most of the time without a separate fee. And Meaning you
1: don't you don't create the trust or the yeah. will
2: that goes out to some. No, we ad- do. We do create them. We have oh, a separate you do? fee for it. Yeah. Oh, and there's We're a doing. separate fee for right. that. So there's all of these all of this advice uh, and and specialists that they can access when our clients are trying to figure out they've retired and they're they're not at Medicare yet. We have a team that does nothing uh, but advise them on what health plan should they get and helping them implement it and all those things. So you have all of these different things uh-huh. that cost something but we're not adding anything to the fee to the client and that's what
1: you mean by hidden fee compression
2: that's hidden fee compression so huh. um you know we're set up that way because that's what we philosophically believed in from the beginning i'm super passionate about this business i'm going to be in this business until they you know i'm going to die working in this business i love this business i love sitting down with a client and saying here's where you are right now and by the way we can do these seven things and all those things you talked about that you're dreaming about, I can increase really a lot the chances all those things are going to happen for you. I love that. That's my favorite part uh, of the of this whole thing. But that has different components to it. Mm-hmm. There's charitable components. There's legal components. There's tax components. There's investment components. That to me is what the client values the most is getting that that advice delivered in a way that is actionable and makes sense to them. That's the part that I'm most passionate about. But that's... That If you look at the larger RIAs, we were the first to do that. And almost all of the other large RIAs have changed what they're doing to try to put together some semblance of what we're doing. Uh, But they've done it too late. They've done it with private equity money. They've done it with people that are CEOs that have never been advisors or are not advisors today. And it's just clunkier. And so I think that's the competitive advantage uh, we have today is... From top to bottom, the president, the vice president, the COO, all of us are planners. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of us are certified financial planner uh, certificates. We all of us sit in front of clients. Um, all the directors in the firm do. We understand how that deliverable works, and that becomes a big, a big differentiator. and And that has created a lot of fee compression in the industry because for someone to compete with us they've And on a large scale, they've had to start to add these things without changing their fee. Now, once that's done, what happens? Once that's done, the next wave happens and you've got to lower fees. And I think we're going to be on the front end of that. The second it can happen, we're going to do what we can to push those down and, and push our competitors out.
1: Where, where do you think those fees drop to?
2: I think if you're a pure money manager, you're going to start looking at 50 basis points. If you're a money manager with Planning Light, you're going to look at 60, 65 basis points. If you're a Comprehensive wealth manager doing everything customized and needs based with a lot of other services. You can go a little bit higher than that, but that's you know, that's substantive. And um, and I think it's going to be quick. I think a lot of people think, Oh, this happens over 20 years and blah blah blah. That's well, not, that's we're not 10 years
1: into the fee compression at least. So yeah. well, I mean, maybe look, it is over
2: 20 look years. Look what just happened with trading fees. So oh, they went from 20 to 10 to 5. Oh, we're on this trend. It could be another ten years. Zero. Then Schwab goes to zero, and the end of the day, TD goes to zero, and the next week, Fidelity goes to zero. So you had a hundred percent drop from five in a couple in a couple of days, right? right? So there will there is always a tipping point. We saw it with mutual funds where oh, commissions or fee only, who cares? Then all of a sudden, commissions were gone, right? Then high cost mutual funds, who cares? The people, the prospective clients I met in 07, 08, 09, it was. Too easy. I mean, they're coming in. They had five mutual funds. They're gonna they're paying the mutual funds more than they're gonna pay us. I'm gonna do a lot more. I'm gonna lower their taxes. I mean, what's what's not to like? Now all of that's out the window. ETFs. uh, Now all of a sudden, five basis points for an S and P 500 fund is crazy, ridiculous. It's free (laughs) now. You know, and so we've seen that tipping point with everything else, and this is the one space that's left. And we don't see it here yet because there's not a firm that has the scale to really to do it. Um, and I think uh, firms are emerging uh, that have the scale and aren't entirely motivated by profits uh, that might be the one to deliver it, and that just might be creative planning.
1: Hmm. So I have to ask you one follow-up question on the die-at-my-desk comment. We've seen personal capital get acquired. We've seen United Capital get acquired. Yeah. We've seen a number of big firms, 20, 30, $40 billion firms, get acquired by places um like Goldman Sachs was one acquirer and Financial Engines was another acquirer and there's a handful both coincidentally publicly traded, what's to prevent someone from coming along and making you an offer you can't refuse? Well, I think I've already seen that a couple of those
2: offers where Mm -hmm. I've looked at them and said, you know, I I really truly believe that I can double this business and five years from now uh, not get that number.
1: I think the I think the market's so insane now but but I mean so wait you you're saying hey 5 years growing 20 30% I'll double the size and even if I don't get that number, you don't care.
2: I don't think I'll get that. I don't think I'll get that number because in five I think, years, I think rates will be different, and private sure. equity will be different, and you know, who knows? There could be a recession. There could be a who knows what's to... But there's too many things that are perfect right now, mm-hmm. and I don't that I'm not confident are going to be perfect in in five years. And I don't think there's any precedent for them. Being but you've never been tempted one. to take the money and run. No, because I I really. Um, what are you going to do? I, I, it's, no, I know what I would do. I, I still have a good time. I could be in this industry and, and have a great time. I don't have to you know, do it on this scale and at this pace. But but, I do enjoy it. I enjoy mm-hmm. the clients and I enjoy the team that I work with. And I don't – it's easy for somebody who's worth millions of dollars to say they don't care about money. So I'm not, I'm not going to say I don't <laughs> care about money. I obviously do. I don't care about more money. I just, you don't care I about just, more I money. I just don't. And so I feel like huh. – you know, I don't have to maximize, right? So, when I, but I'll tell you what: I'm sitting with clients, and they tell me, "I'm worn out. I've grown my business to this level. I got this ev- this offer from private equity. What should I do?" I tell them, "Look, hit the bid. If you if you are not in love with what you're doing, take the money and run, right. because this is really really good times right now, and right. we don't know what it's going to be like in four or five years, you know so." But but for me, I mean, I'm that's minim-
1: that's regret minimization. What I mean, <laughs> right, if you don't do it, right. and this offer goes away? Are you going to feel worse than if you yeah. do do it, and maybe you got a slightly better offer in five years? Right, and I would have no regret minimization because I
2: just that's not what's motivating me. Mm-hmm. I, I want I want to build the best offering. I want to be able to look back and go. Anybody that came to work for Creative Planning said, you know what? I was challenged. I learned something. I, you know, Peter never put anything in my way. In fact, if there was an obstacle in my way, he removed it and I was able to achieve the very best I could there. That matters a lot to me. I want a, a clients when they're at our annual event and they're talking to each other, I want them to say, you know what? Creative planning promised some things to me and they delivered all those things and I feel great about my decision to come there. I am very motivated by those things. Uh, it's great that we're in a business um, that happens to be very hot right now, mm-hmm. um, but if it is half as hot, uh, five years from now, I, I'm going to be fine. You know, you can only eat one steak, dicker, steak dinner a night, right? And, and I feel like um, I feel like I've already achieved that. I'm
1: in my 40s, and I'm just motivated by different things. So you mentioned earlier about being able to take advantage of the next financial crisis, the way you did with the last financial crisis. What would you do to accumulate some sort of a war chest? You you had hinted at that earlier. How does a firm put together a war chest? To go out and make acquisitions when things are, uh, let's say, less perfect than they are today.
2: Yeah, I mean, you have two choices. You can hope nothing happens in the next couple of years and, well, that's and, kind bu- of, and build it from cash flow. Right, that's or kind you, of foolish. Or you can sell uh, a minority stake where you still control everything. And, you, you know, when you sell a minority stake, you don't get a full valuation. You get a discount. Right? Oh, so, really? Yeah, if somebody's going to buy a minority stake, in general, they're going to pay you 25% less. And they're going to do that, that makes because sense. they don't have any control. Right. I mean, no so control you, you know, exactly. So they're really betting on you mm-hmm. to continue to do a good job and not be an idiot about something strategic, right?
1: All right. So I was halfway there. Right. <laughs> there. <laughs> uh, almost. <laughs>
2: so I think that I think that um, because I'm not into the maximization of it, that that fits. I think our needs where we could take, you know, sell five you know, to eighteen you know, percent, somewhere in that range, raise enough money that. When we're going to the next crisis, you know, at our annual uh, meeting, I can say what I always did, which is we're never, ever going to let anybody go because of what's going on in the markets or with the economy. In fact, I'm going to keep doing what I've done every quarter of my entire career, which is find hire good people and bring on new clients. You know, creative planning in its entire history has never had an, a month that didn't have positive flow. Really? More, more
1: Even in the financial crisis?
2: Even in the financial crisis- more money was coming into creative planning than leaving every single month from 04 to today. And we've never had a period of time of any significance where there wasn't a tremendous positive employee flow, right? We are attracting clients and employees with our behavior. And I think a big part of that is the, that they know that this is a place where through thick and thin, uh, I'm going to be with them you know, to the end. I'm going to be in the in the, in the battle. Well, you,
1: you're the, you know, the old expression is fish rot from the head down. You set the tone as the leader of the firm. And that obviously permeates out to the rest of the 600 employees. Yeah. So I have a ton more questions for you. Can you stick around a little yeah, bit? I'd love to. We have been speaking with Peter Malouk. He is the CIO and president of Creative Planning of 45 billion-dollar firm headquartered in Kansas City. Is that right? right. Um, If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and come back for the Podcast Extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things RIA-related. You can find that at Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever your finer podcasts are found. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at podcast at bloomberg.net, Give us a review on Apple iTunes. Check out my weekly column on Bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at steeplecom That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Steeple Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Welcome to the podcast. Peter, thank you so much for doing this. And I, I'm just going to share a little inside baseball. Um, you and I really met for the first time in September at the Wealth Stack Conference that uh, my firm is one of the uh, hosts of and i was fascinated to learn you don't do a lot of media you mm-hmm. don't go to that was your first conference right. um and it's astonishing cuz here in new york in the media center of the world everybody is vying for some exposure you guys really built this with practically no national news exposure am i am i overstating that or is that no right? i
2: think you've got it right we we tried for a long time to do nothing you know to have no exposure and there was one industry publication that that had called maybe for the third time to do an interview, and I didn't respond. And I got an email from the reporter who said, "Hey, we're we're doing a story on creative <laughs> planning, and right now we just have quotes from your competitors. So, do you want to be interviewed or not?"
1: That's a smart uh, smart approach. Yeah, and
2: they made the the headline was outing a reluctant star, and that was the beginning of the. That's end a great of, headline, of, being, of being totally under the radar. That that was the end
1: of that. Um, and, I, see, I would have gone with the biggest firm you've never heard of. That, that would have been my that headline. That sounds cooler. Uh, yeah, so. it's a, yep. I, you know, it's got a, it's a little edgier. <laughs> but but outing a reluctant star is is pretty accurate because you guys have built something that's unique and, you know, can I call it special? Is it a special Please firm? Please do. I think um, so, yeah. Well, you can't help but look at those growth numbers from 04 through 08, 08 09, and then from 09 forward for the past decade and not yeah. say – Wow these guys have to be doing something right You don't grow that fast. There are firms that have been around longer and there are firms that have grounded out they that are just grinding mm. out sales the sales process. I don't get the sense that that's your your approach. No I think that um,
2: I think that we've gotten a lot more attention now obviously as we've gotten to, to this size. And we reached just a point where we either had to embrace it or it was not going to go great. So we're to the the embracing it. So that was
1: my – actually, that's a question I didn't get to, but I wanted to. Why are you now finally saying, all right, I guess we have to participate in some selective conversation through the public media? Is it simply just – it's unavoidable at this point? Well, you know, I had a
2: I had a um, a client that was uh, in PR and she sat across from me at, our, at an annual review we had and she said, Peter, I've never seen a firm do so little with so much. And I said, what do you mean? She's like, you guys don't have, you're not even on, we weren't on social media, right. which is funny talking to you because there's no firm as present on social media as, as yours in the space. I mean, we, we, I mean, I think my facebook page was controlled by russians literally like you went to my facebook page and <laughs> you were hacked. like some yeah um and and she's like you know when people are looking at creative planning they're googling and they're going to the they're not seeing anything you're saying right, right. they're just seeing what other people are saying and so you should at least tell your story and I, you know it was kind of a light bulb for me that uh you really can't there is no under the radar right, right? anymore and, anyway. yeah and so uh if 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 you want people to learn, it'd be nice if they at least heard your voice and you telling the story of what you're all about. And I mean, she was right. And I, I like back now as as probably being so under the radar as for that time period was probably good,
1: but that was probably the best piece of advice I've had in the last you know three or four years. Huh. So um, there's really two types of communication. One is with the world at large yeah. and prospective clients, but the other communication... Is with your existing clients? How do you and you mentioned you really when you're building a plan, you're really drumming it into people's consciousness. Hey, markets go up and down. Expect a a correction or a crash at some point in the future. Recession's are cyclical. Everything isn't great all the time. But after the that initial review, how do you keep in touch with clients? How do you keep them informed about? the state of the world, where we are in the market cycle, how the portfolio is doing? What what sort of client communications do you guys manage? So I write newsletters um, many times throughout the year. And, and anytime there's
2: a big event, you know, Brexit that night, they get a, they'll get they get a newsletter. You know, it's just, it's just instantly we'll send out a communication. Others in the firm write newsletters. We do several different podcasts that we share with our, our clients. Internally. Internally, yeah. Huh, interesting. We, um, we, um, Have an annual symposium that we invite clients to. We had almost 3,000 at our last one. Really? A a great experience. We email the videos of the speakers that will allow us to send videos uh, to our clients. And then for us, we see our clients in person beyond the onboarding. So they're coming in to do all kinds of stuff uh, throughout the year. And then they do annual reviews with us. So they're seeing, they're talking to their advisor and multiple people within creative planning, plus hearing the voice of the investment team and the firm, you know many, many different ways throughout the year.
1: How do you keep that message consistent? So you have 600 people, yeah. we're a fraction of that. One of my concerns is always, we have a lot of people in the office who do research, who publish, yeah. who, who write about different things. Philosophically, we're all more or less on the same page. So the message is consistent, but the concern is as you scale up and it's that many more people, does that become a challenge to keep the message the same across every advisor to every client?
2: No, I think that we are definitely a one voice firm, and I think mm-hmm. that that's a different firms have different decisions. When you look at larger RAs, they tend not to be that way. They tend to look like a, a, a brokerage house. You know, you can right. go to Morgan Stanley, and the guy in office one might be a guy that does options for all his clients, and office two is a guy who does bonds for all his clients. At Creative Planning, we it's the same thing. Every client is going through a planning process. It doesn't matter uh, if they're on the Forbes list, which is somebody um, we started with a couple of weeks ago, is going through the same process as somebody who's got $500,000. And we have that process in place because we know that in our, we've developed a way that we think is the best way to get the information we need from the clients to figure out what their needs, their dreams, their vision are. It sounds cheesy, but sometimes your goals are not your dreams, right? So we wanna know what they're really trying to accomplish and how feasible it all is so everyone's going through that same process and then we have a philosophy so when we were talking earlier about you know we don't believe in hedge funds but we I believe in 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 private equity and alternatives and I believe that the, the markets are fairly efficient so we use indexing instead of uh, most instead of large cap mutual funds uh, When I say that's what I believe that's what creative believes right? right so if you're coming and interviewing at creative planning you're not coming to creative planning unless you believe that or close enough and you're, gonna, you're <laughs> going to, you're going to believe you're really going to act that way. There is no, oh, by the way, we've got a hedge fund thing over here and the large cap mutual funds over there. It's one voice, one philosophy, consistent messaging. If a client gets a newsletter for me, they're not going, what the hell is this? You know, I'm in Los Angeles and my advisor is doing something completely different. Right. That's not, that's not happening. And what's great about that is we don't have to ride write vague garbage, right? We can be very specific about what we believe and what we're doing at any point in the market cycle because everyone's going to read that and go yeah that's what I'm experiencing
1: huh so i don't remember if it was you or someone else who used the phrase franken firms yeah that was where, me. <laughs> that is you right yeah. so where you have hedge funds over here and and covered call options over there and some wacky s&p sector rotation here and a firm just becomes a conglomeration of 10 smaller firms and no Consistent yeah. philosophy is that is that a survivable model these days?
2: No, I look at like some of these some of the private equity firms in this space. Um, they come in, they buy a one billion dollar, two billion dollar firm. They call it a platform, right? And then they take that firm and they go buy other firms and go, oh, we'll do your compliance and HR and, and financial stuff for you and give you a big check. Come join us. Oh, you use this software. Oh, that's fine. Keep keep using it. Oh, you you believe in you know exiting the market when your signals from your bond desk say this, oh yeah, you go, go ahead and keep doing that. And you wind up with a firm and it grows to 10 billion and it's really just 25 small firms right. uh, that don't operate the same, don't do the same things. Um, that's what I think of as a Franken firm. I think that buck is getting passed from one private equity firm to another and is going to explode uh, in somebody's lap. And a lot of the larger firms, that's what they are. Uh, they're just an amal- amalgamation of a bunch of stuff that's not philosophically consistent. I do think this is a one of the negatives of private equity is you have private equity come into a space like this. Let's say they want to exit in three years. You take a two billion dollar firm, you buy eight firms, you make it four billion. You you exit, you make fifty percent. Everyone's high fiving, but somebody now has something that doesn't really probably isn't best for the client anymore, mm-hmm. and probably isn't best for the employee anymore, and everyone can smell it. Right, and and eventually the smell will get bad enough uh, that you'll lose employees, you'll lose clients. But by then, the person who put it all together is long gone. So it's a hot potato.
1: What? So one of the knocks against private equity and RIA's years ago, and I don't know if this is still true. And is it Jim in your office? And I had a whole conversation yeah. about this. Was in the old days, private equity would come in, they'd buy a firm. They basically loaded up with uh, variable annuities that have a giant commission on it and didn't work out for anybody except the P.E. G- uh, guys and whoever sold the firm and exited. I'm getting the impression that that old school model, and maybe that's more than 10 years ago, that, that's not what we're talking about in this space no, anymore. No, I don't think you're seeing that. that that's long gone. Yeah, that's- now it's sticky money, regular um, revenue on a, on an ongoing basis. That's the appeal of this. Yeah, I mean, I see two,
2: two, well, a couple of different things happening. One is you see someone comes in, actually makes your place better and mm-hmm. helps institutionalize it and grow it. Uh, that's that's one group, and there's another group that's like, hey, we're going to come in, we're going to buy it, we're going to get rid of a bunch of people, we're going to put in some new people, we're going to go buy twenty three firms, we don't care what they look like. Right. Uh, we're going to put all this crap together and we're going to sell it to somebody else because there's a bunch of money sloshing around, and eventually <laughs> someone's going to get stuck. Right. right. And When uh, the music stops, yeah, you don't want to be that person. Right. It's it's
1: so, but. But I think there's more of the good guys than the bad guys. Uh-huh. So let's talk about a couple of things with creative planning that I wanted to ask you about that I didn't get to. Um, you had previously mentioned 401ks are less than 10% of your practice. Yeah. How do you grow that space? It's a very slow and sticky space even when employees and management are not happy with their 401k providers, right?
2: I think we, we probably have three... 4 billion in, in 401k assets and it's growing very rapidly. And we're we're divided into two segments. One segment is takes care of you know, bigger plans where employees want to sit down one-on-one with somebody, learn a lot, help help help. Another one is very technology oriented startup plans, um small plans where uh, the economics of building a 401k are very difficult for those folks, maybe it's two two dentists starting a practice. Right. But what we bring to our clients is almost always they're going from the traditional model uh, of an insurance company providing it to a fiduciary providing it. And there's a lot of liability around 401k plans now. So if you're on the board making decisions for 401ks, you've sure. got liability. If you're an HR, if you're, if you're the owner, you've got liability. So they, they love transferring that liability to a fiduciary, and we offer that full fiduciary service. Um, second, almost every single time we lower the fees very substantially. And then third, we bring a common sense investment approach. You know, low cost index funds in the in the portfolio, along with ways where the client can choose a model and and get their money managed that way. And so, we're seeing very fast growth in that space. It's just the private side is growing much faster. Uh, but I think that the key in the four hundred and one k space is. To be competitive, you have to be able to drive fees way, way, way down. We found a way. Twenty-five to do that there. basis
1: points. How how low is low in four hundred and one k? I think space?
2: our t- like even a startup plan for us might pay a, a fee of thirty basis points. Okay. I mean, like, and you're talking about someone starting with zero assets. Now they still have their. When you look at a four hundred and one k plan, there's administration costs. Sure, the, you have to pay for the funds, well, record right. keeping. Right, right. There's three so when or four other. you get done other... with all of it, they should be less than one one percent in the plan, but appreciably less than. Yeah, it right? yeah. Should be appreciably less than one percent, and most plans are you know, one and a half plus. And so it's kind of like very easy. I think if we're you coming cut in, your fees in half, that's yeah. a huge win for everybody. Most of the time, when we're talking to somebody about a four hundred and one k, we're going to get that four hundred and one k. The issue is four hundred and one k's are much harder than the private side because private side somebody walks in and they're going to make a decision with right. the 401k somebody walks in and they are the owner but they've got a there's a CFO there's HR you're talking to HR they're going right. to talk to that. I mean it's a, it's a process and it should be a process it's a big decision uh, for the business
1: so in the old days it was um somebody's brother-in-law was yeah. the one running the 401k that right. those days are over now that's right? gone i think on the private side that's gone i mean it was very yeah. very common where
2: everyone just had their money with their with their buddy right. or their neighbor or whatever that that stuff's gone and i think that's another oh. thing that 0809 and Madoff and all, all that just got rid of that. And people are getting much more serious about who their advisor is.
1: Let, let's talk about the institutional side, which has its own set of challenges. How do you deal with pension funds, foundations, um, larger entities, even family offices that might have a different set of needs and a different investment target? than uh, a family who has a portfolio with you. So this is the smallest part. You know, people that have family offices, we manage
2: a lot of money for those folks, you know, private family offices.
1: Separate so, from endowments and institutions. That's
2: right. But, but institutional, as I think of it like you do, is in endowments and universities and things like that. That, that space we entered about five years ago, it is by far the smallest part of our business. And I would just take the 401k space and, and make it even harder. <laughs> a lot more decision makers and a lot lower fees. And um, you're seeing a very big migration away from alternatives towards you know, low-cost passive investing complemented with certain alternatives. Uh-huh. Seems to be where that space is heading.
1: Huh? Qu- quite interesting. And you have described the tiers of your clients as private wealth group, ultra-affluent, and emerging wealth. How do these segments differ, and, and do you offer different services to each of them?
2: So we used to just call everything private wealth, and you went through the process. We built a portfolio. Our typical client was the multimillionaire next door, um, you know, the, the doctor or dentist or lawyer that worked their entire career, the business owner or guy who made money in real estate. They put together a million dollars or $12 million, and they became a client of creative planning. Uh, about four years ago, we segmented out uh, emerging wealth group. We had so many family members of clients and it, we didn't really have a great way to handle it. But it's very difficult to sit with somebody who's got seven million dollars and they've got three kids, and their kids are all twenty eight, and say we're not going to work with your kids. Right. right. But they would wind up maybe with the wrong advisors because the advisor working with somebody who has twelve million dollars at that point would be our most was our most sophisticated advisors, and they'd be working with somebody who had fifty. So we created an emerging wealth group to deal with that, and open the doors to people who had less than half a million, and it exploded. I mean, that group has thousands of clients, about twenty employees and interestingly has become one of the biggest lead sources for our ultra affluent practice which Mm. is where we really try today to only take on people that have 20 million 25 million or more um like a few this week that came on had 100 million or more um and there's a a group that's probably our longest running group as a whole within the firm that's used to dealing with those kind of clients and the there is a lot more sophistication needed there, not necessarily for a large part of the portfolio, but for a small part of the portfolio and from a legal and tax perspective. If you've got somebody who's got $150 million, all this debate we've been having about are stocks going to do better than bonds and do small do better than large and will emerging markets do better than stocks and will private equity do better, these are what I call 1% conversations. Right, right? We're going to move them on it. You know, you're going to make 1% more or less. If you've got $150 million, you really don't care about that you care about the 40% estate tax. You care about the 12% state tax. You care about how your kids are going to get the money and is it going to screw them up. Uh, you care about asset protection. And these are very sophisticated concepts that most of the RA space is not equipped to handle. Mm-hmm. And we have, a, I think, a very substantive group within creative planning that's used to dealing with hundreds of those families. And I think we bring a very unique perspective there. And I think What's interesting is when they're comparing, it's, it's always between us and say a place like a J.P. Morgan or a Goldman Sachs. And the RIA story resonates so much, you know, independent and we don't mm-hmm. have our own products, but we also practice tax and law and they don't. And we're used to dealing with folks your size and that's not something I could say seven years ago, right? right? So it's, it's allowed us to become very competitive and, and the, one of the fastest growing parts of our practice is that very, very, very large family.
1: So one of the issues we've noticed amongst RIAs, especially independent RIAs, is that there's sort of a barbell across the age spectrum. You have a lot of advisors in their 60s, late 50s, and then a bunch of people in their 20s who are, um, you met at the conference, very social, very active, very um, uh, specialized in different areas, but there's this big gap across the middle so question number one is, what does this mean to your future growth? And question number two, do we have enough young people coming into the RIA industry? You know, I read a lot about this
2: and I, I view it very differently. So as running creative planning, our market share is point oh 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 two, right? Or 0.001. Nobody has market right. share in this space. So I don't, to me, even if there were half the advisors, I don't need to have 40,000. I'm not Merrill Lynch. You right. Know what I mean, so
1: no thundering herd. Right, in Kansas? I, Is that I, right?
2: No. I mean, I just need to find a few awesome people every quarter and I'm always going to be able to find that. Right. And mm-hmm. so I just don't, I lose, I just spend any time worrying about, about that. And frankly, about the industry. I think
1: the industry could use less advisors. Really? Yes. Do you think the headspace, uh, compression like the fee compression we've seen over the past 10 years, does that continue? Well, I think, I think that there are advisors that do a lot of
2: good, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of advisors that's just not fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I think having a, a bunch of really good advisors that survive is better than having a whole bunch of advisors. Uh, and so I don't see this as an industry crisis. I think if the industry contracts a little bit, that's just fine. We've got the technology for it to contract. I'm just focused on finding the right people for our little tiny Section of your
1: little tiny (laughs) section of the wealth management industry, (laughs) and and you know, it's funny. I was shocked to read about your little tiny firm. I think once you cross the billion Mm -hmm. dollar threshold in AUM, that puts you in like the top eight percent or so of advisors. It's really that there are 40,000 advisors. Mostly, I think someone else called it lifestyle practices. So so you have a unique perspective on what's going on. Um, What happens with those people? Is it just a massive consolidation? Or can you just have a very nice little $100 million practice and that's fine? You know, I know there's a lot of people running around
2: going. All oh, those guys are going to get crushed, and I, I don't uh, don't necessarily agree. If with you
1: that. go to the conferences, right. you, they're the same three people right. who coincidentally have been on an acquisition right. spree. They're all buying those. So, so maybe to, they're yeah. talking their books right. a little bit. Right. Um, you know, I'm assuming like us, you don't really buy into that.
2: I don't buy into it totally. So I think that I think that most most five hundred million dollar firms cannot compete at the level they used to. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hearing that from firms that call us. Uh, To be acquired. I mean, they're just saying, look, I used to be able to grow and it's gotten a little more intense, a little more competitive. And I feel like to bring on larger clients, I need to be at a larger firm. There's no question that's a force. Mm -hmm. But it reminds me of like when the robo advisors came out and everyone said, well, everything is going to go to the robos. Well,
1: not really. (laughs) Everything didn't go to the robos, but but some did. Right. right? So that came from somewhere. And you guys don't have a robo, do you? We don't. No. Any thoughts of setting up a robo for that sub... $200,000 $200,000 client who maybe eventually moves from um, under 100000 to emerging wealth to high net worth? You know, I've, I've thought about it, and I've just thought, you know, that's just not what we do. Mm-hmm. It's
2: not our style. And I want one creative planning client to talk to another creative planning client and go, this is what they do for me. And I don't want anybody to go, I never saw a person ever, and everything was online. And I know there's people that want that, and that's totally fine. It's
1: just not what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to me, it's just we don't sell ice cream either. It's just completely, <laughs> di- it's just
2: completely different.
1: And, and then before I get to my favorite questions, I have one last um, general question about the firm. You actually made your first acquisition this year, a five hundred million dollar firm. Um, that was per, was that is that this year or last year?
2: That was this year, and mm-hmm. that was a, it was amazing to, to me. This was really fascinating because. I was very focused on on building out all our services and building a culture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we did that. And really in 2018, we moved to a new headquarters. We made a bunch of shifts in technology. We finished our hiring push, got all the right people in all the right places, uh, finished building out our trust company, institutional arm, and so on. And really, we're in a place where I could finally start to think about that a little bit, but I'd kind of put it on the shelf as not a priority. Mm-hmm. And uh, a guy, Brad Johnston, gave me a call literally out of the blue and just said, hey, I've talked to all these firms. I thought- maybe Wait, wait, wait,
1: wait, wait, Brad Johnson, guy you don't know out of the Don't blue, know him at all. Yeah. Calls you and Peter Malouk says, yeah, I'll take the call.
2: So actually, I don't know. He winds up talking to Jim, okay, the guy in my office. And Jim's like, you know, maybe you should talk to Brad. And I'm like, I don't, I just, we just got done with this. Let's give it a little time before we do a couple acquisitions. So we'll just just have a conversation. So Brad comes to Kansas. He's, I want to come to Kansas City. He, he comes to Kansas City, brings an advisor. I find out the advisor is his son- so I'm like, well, maybe they're just kicking tires, but I really liked them. They're from Minnesota. All this right. stuff everyone says about everyone. Minnesota, Minnesota nice, so- for sure. It's, it's true. I, yeah. I, I don't understand it, but I really liked them. Um, and, you know, they left and I told, Jim's like, how'd it go? I go, well, I really liked them, um, but, you know, I think they just want to know what we're doing. And... uh <laughs> Anyway, you know, Brad called me the next day and said he was interested in continuing dialogue. I think it was 30 days later uh, they were part of creative
1: planning. Really? That fast? Uh,
2: yeah. And even though it was our first one and we, we they didn't know what they were doing, we didn't know what we were doing. You know, they'd never been acquired before. We never acquired. Uh, I ha- It was wonderful. And our, and I looked at Minnesota and said, you know, we had a presence there. I could, it might have been around half a billion. And now all of a sudden we're about a billion dollar enterprise. Right. And uh, we've got some scale and we're going to get noticed. And we're in the, just like you said, how many billion dollar firms are there, right? right? So now all of a sudden we're in the conversation on cases we weren't before. And it got me looking at the whole country and saying, you know what, um, in Dallas, we manage about a billion. Um, we were approached by a firm that has about 600 million. Uh, we're now having LOI with them.
1: And so- So you'll be close to 2 billion in Dallas and now you're a player there.
2: Yeah. And so I think that- that what's happening now is the description I use is we have a very, very strong tree trunk with very strong branches that we've built. We built them okay? mm-hmm. They're they're the creative planning DNA and we could add leaves to that tree and have that tree flourish without damaging the tree. Right. And so we're not a billion-dollar firm where the whole trunk was put together by 25 firms, right? <laughs> so when people come into creative, they know this is how it works, right? This is the culture. This is the investment philosophy. This is what the people are like. And it's not different from office to office because it's not 23 different firms. So it's really opened my mind to that. We've now done two acquisitions. We have two other firms under LOI, uh, and we don't have a mergers and acquisitions team. You know, it's just... Someone has a conversation with Jim, and then and then they meet me, and and uh, we're off. And 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 if if they're philosophically a fit, and uh, look, maybe one in ten times it is right. right. You've got to be philosophically a fit. You've got to like the people and all that. So you get to that ten percent. Uh, with that ten percent, it's happening pretty quickly. I think that we're finding there are a few people that are very like minded out there, and I think they're finding that hey, this is a firm that's kind of like me. It's not really an amalgamation of a bunch of stuff, right? And so they can they can be a part of something that's. Kind of what they were doing but turbocharged
1: that's fascinating it's really interesting to hear you guys have have scaled that up because that was one of the questions i had how the hell do you get to be that big organically with no acquisitions yeah. and imagine if they did acquisitions you guys are going to be a hundred billion dollars not too not too long from now
2: yeah it's a crazy industry you can never predict what's going to happen true uh, but true. uh but uh i i feel like uh I feel very good about the offering that we have uh, from the people to the process and I think um, you know you, what you have to be you don't have to be the, the fastest person in the world. you got to be faster than the, the people you're racing against, right? And I, I feel like we're in a good spot right now. Uh,
1: the, that, that makes perfect sense to me. I know I don't have you for forever, so let me get to my favorite questions. We ask all of our guests. These have been designed to be revealing about who you are. Um let's start with the first car you ever owned, year make and model.
2: Nineteen eighty five Oldsmobile Omega crashed it uh teaching my uh younger fourteen year old brother how to drive.
1: Teaching the fourteen year old. There you go. <laughs> it was and not a good lesson. Wh- where did you grow up? You... Don't
2: start with a left turn. Don't, were you that, that's in not...
1: Kansas or uh yeah, we were in Kansas. Yeah. So I uh, to me, I'm first question is how do you crash something in Kansas? Well, it's I mean it's an actual city,
2: Barry. I mean, there's like okay. two million people there. Right, um, Kansas City. I mean, so you oh, so it, you're in, yeah. Kansas I'm in Kansas City? Kansas not City. Yeah, in the we're sub- we're not in like a town of 300 in West. Gotcha. Kansas. Yeah, we're in Kansas. So easy
1: enough to have, Because <laughs> right. <city>. when <laughs> I think Kansas, I'm thinking farms no. and ranches and lots of open space. Most of the Kansas, yes. Kansas City, no. Got it. I didn't realize you grew up in, in yeah. Kansas City. That's uh interesting. Um. Who were some of your early mentors? Who affected the way you look at the world of investing and financial planning? Well, I would say that um,
2: the the person that owned creative planning before me was just such an incredibly, I mean, he's an incredibly positive person and, and was an incredible influence to watch. Uh, he treated people so well and, and he always had a positive attitude. He always looked on the bright side of things. And this is a business that, that you you need to infuse it's interesting because you need to be an optimistic person Mm -hmm. but you have to take a pessimistic point of view when you're doing planning you have to plan for the worst right right so i I really liked that kind of style uh that he had but really the biggest influence uh was very early i i had had a t-shirt company and i made a bunch of money and and i was a few thousands of dollars and and my dad uh said i'll just put it in an index fund. And I remember watching the Asian contagion on TV. I can't even remember what year it was, but 98. Okay. All right. (laughs) All right. Well, that's impressive. Right. And I could uh, be wrong. Could be 97. And my dad's like, Hey, um, yeah, don't worry about it. It'll, you know, it'll it'll all work itself out over five years. And that's interesting. And I went and read a bunch of books and found out he was right. And that probably wound up sending me on the trajectory, you know, reading some Bogle books and Jeremy Siegel books and, and the rest is history.
1: So I'm going to say Asian contagion 97, long-term capital management 98. Okay, but around yeah. still, both around the still same super time, impressed. Yeah. and and both with the same result: temporary yeah. setback. Right, um, which is what we tend to see all market. Yep, corrections are temporary, <laughs> even if they last from 1929 to 1954. It's still <laughs> temporary. Yeah. Hopefully, you're not retiring right into that. Um, let's talk about books. Give us some of the uh, favorite books that you like to read. Be they you mentioned Bogle. Who else? Yeah. Who else? Uh... So
2: I read a couple books every week, but I can't get away from the same two books. I think as being uh, super influential to me. One takes like twenty minutes to read. It's called How Full Is Your Bucket, and it's basically just says you know everybody you encounter, mm-hmm. um, you, you leave feeling better or worse. Uh, and is somebody? You know, are you filling people's buckets up? Are you draining their buckets? It's really informed the way I interview the who I work with the the way I get through a day. Making sure that I'm in the right mind frame all the time, and it was it, it, so obvious, such a light, quick read, but it it's really informed my. How my thinking. full
1: is your bucket? Yeah, I don't know book. if I've ever heard of that. And I'm gonna I'm gonna have to put really that on my short,
2: list. really short book. I mean, I got it for my kids. I got it for all our employees at the time, and and it's really interesting. I mean, like when you when you talk to that client, when you talk to a colleague, when you talk to a family member, uh, are they leaving feeling better about themselves and their day, or worse? And, it, and it's it's an interesting...
1: Pretty it, straightforward. It, it, makes yeah, a lot of very, sense. Very, very
2: straightforward. Um, and then uh, a, a book that uh, really kind of transformed my thinking was Awareness by DeMello. And he was a Jesuit priest to... Awareness. Uh, awareness. He was a Jesuit priest that um, lived in the Far East. And so it's got a combination of all these things. But the, the basic message of the book is get over yourself. You know, you don't matter. Whatever you accomplish... A couple of years from now, no one's going to know who you are. Uh, you know, we don't know who anybody from Mesopotamia is. You know, we might remember Abraham Lincoln, but right. you, know, it, it, you, you go far enough in the future. Very, very, very little matters. Uh, it sounds like really horrible. What it does is it clarifies for you um, the highs shouldn't be too high. The lows
1: shouldn't be too low. and um, Very Solomonic in its wisdom. Yeah. and, I, this, and this too shall pass.
2: Th- this too shall pass. And it really, if you start to take that attitude... It, for me i'm not sure this is what the book was about but it really crystallized you know if i look at like all the stuff that comes at you all day everywhere and all the stuff you encounter the reality is 98 of it doesn't matter at all it's ephemeral right just like investments right it's <laughs> there's so much stuff out there part of being good at investments is to know the 98 that doesn't matter at all right what you don't need to read what you don't need to watch what you don't need to care about what you don't need to invest in what you don't need to research and then you get, you carve away all that stone, you get the masterpiece, right? And I think that 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 book for me really just changed my thinking of who do I want to be around? Who do I want to spend my time with? What things matter? What things don't? How do I get everything that doesn't matter away from me and focus more on the things that do matter? And so I, it was, it came an interesting time in my life to read that
1: book. It's the only book I've read more than once. Huh? Um, I enjoyed it a lot. That That is quite fascinating. Um, tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience.
2: So I've, I've failed many, many, many times. So I'll give you just some growing up experiences. So, you know, I, I, um, started a a lawn mowing company with a friend and I mean, it was a real deal. We were making some good money and back then you had to bag all the grass. Right. And then some other people came along with these big machines and, and you didn't need to bag grass. It turned out, it turned out people thought you needed to, but you didn't need to. So it would take us like five hours to do a lawn. They would do it in 10 minutes. And, you know, <laughs> we were like, wow, we're, we're out of business. That was super quick. You know, we didn't understand where this industry was going. Uh, I had an idea for a t-shirt. Um, it was against drunk driving. My school wouldn't let us do it. It was a Catholic school and it was a little racy. So we created the t-shirt. My mom like, oh, you should just go make it. So I made it. Wound up selling like 100,000 of what, this t-shirt.
1: What was the t-shirt saying that the it, school wouldn't let you? On the front,
2: it said, Cedic Drink, Cedic Drive, Cedic Die. And on the back, it said, "Don't don't be... You know, basically, right? <laughs> I so, mean, and so, this winds up selling like a hundred thousand shirts. Scenic,
1: stu- scenic drink, scenic drive, scenic. Give us the, the front of the shirt.
2: Scenic drink. Cedic Drive, Cedic oh, Die. I'm really regretting this. I remember, yeah. I remember those shirts.
1: I had no idea that was you. Those
2: shirts and were giant. Up until now, probably nobody did. I don't know what, what door I've opened here. But um, <laughs> I have found you can't find one online. Thank God. So, anyway, then they wound up creating like Cedic Smoke and all, all the, create a whole and line around this. W- were
1: you doing anything with the proceeds involving any drunk driving or mothers and yeah, mad? mail? there was or? a donation that went back right. to
2: sad and mad. And, and so. This went on for, you know, like two years. I'm like, hey, I'm I'm not even in college. I'm, do I need to go to college? Uh-oh. Well, here's what I learned about patents. So all of a sudden, the shirt wound up all over the country, and I hadn't had it trade. And that was it. I was out of business. No trademark. Done. People
1: were just stealing it. Done.
2: The printer I used stole it. <laughs> so
1: they basically took
2: the art my mom had drawn and the sayings and then just copied the whole thing. And so that was a hell of a lesson. Wow. Uh, the, the The biggest lesson, though, was the music stores. You know, I had one store... Save the money out. Got to two. Save the money. Got to four. Save the money. Got to eight. Had three partners. Bought out the three partners. Was about to graduate from law school, and I'm like, you know what? I might. I bet if I stopped opening stores, I can make a hundred grand doing this. I'm not gonna work. You know, this is what I'm gonna do. Right. Napster came out. Done. <laughs> I'm telling. I think it was a hundred days. Ever- the last store was closed. Really? Yeah. My total take over my, I think, six years of of running these and buying at all my partners was $8,400. It calculated into cents per hour right. uh, spent in the store. But but you know what? It was worth more than any college degree that I got. It was an incredibly valuable experience, but it, it taught me about how fast technology changes things. For sure. And you can be growing and you can think your competition, some music store across the street, uh, it's not. It's something you're not even thinking about, right? And I, and I constantly look at creative planning and say what am i not thinking about what can i do better how can i stay in front of somebody else uh, how can i be the better offering how can i you know do more for less all the time i'm asking that question because i've been on the receiving end of capitalism uh, capitalism's
1: uh, death blow several times a couple already. of times yeah. well andy grove had it right only the paranoid survive right <laughs> um, what do you do for fun what do you do when you're not helping people plan for their financial futures so i i love um short trips is probably my favorite thing where I can, if I'm going
2: to see a client in in Boston, I'll, you know, take the whole family and I'll go make a weekend of it and, and I can kind of get griswold about it. You know, my uh-huh. kids, my kids are like, so I've tried but you have to
1: explain <laughs> the that's European true. vacation yeah. <laughs> reference. I find myself the problem with getting older. That's true. Isn't yeah. the body falling apart. Right. It's all of your cultural references that, that's true. fail with the younger generation. Yeah. I
2: try to cram too much trip into too little time. So I've tried to lay off that and just mm-hmm. go, look, like, I'm going to a city. We're going to do two or three things that are fun. But I, I think that. America's amazing cities. And so we've tried to hit every city that has a, a baseball stadium. We're three-fourths of the way done. That, that's that been a, a, a complete blast. And I try to cram that in wherever I possibly can, which is rare because we've got three kids that are teenagers and they all have like 27
1: sports. And ha, Have you seen the book 36 Hours In? I think it's the New York Times puts it out. I haven't. Oh, so this is basically every, the top 200 or 400 cities in the country. You're going to spend 36 hours in the city? Here's what you need to see. Here's what you Man, need to do. Man, I could do. use
2: that book like eight years ago. Oh, well, <laughs> oh, how many if you I still, still got, I'm sure you have some got, cities left. Yeah, I do, yeah. But it's uh
1: it's a really interesting book, you should look at it. Let's talk about the industry for a second. What are you most optimistic about within the financial services industry today? And what might you be pessimistic about within that same industry? What I think I'm
2: optimistic about is I think the consumer is very close to finally getting what they deserve, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, It's taken long enough, right? It's taken a long, 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 long time. And I think we're almost there. I think we're going to get to a world someday where every advisor is a fiduciary, that the firm that's advising the client doesn't own their own products, that they get to know the client a little bit before they invest their money and that they do all that at a reasonable price. It's taken a long, long, long time I think we're well on our way there. That gives me a lot of optimism. I felt like the industry's been broken for a long time. Now, mm-hmm. we could be really close to there and have it not be fixed. You know, by the time when you and I are still working, it might not be fixed. Right. It still might not be fixed.
1: But it's certainly on the path to getting. Closer. Even if the government decided not to embrace the fiduciary standard, it seems like the market is. That's exactly right. I think the market is what's forcing
2: most of this. The market is what has forced lower mutual fund fees and lower commissions and right. disclosing proprietary products and all. The market's pushing that. The government's done a phenomenally horrible job. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in this space, and so I think that that you're right. I think capitalism itself is forcing us to get where we need to be. Pessimistic. Um, I worry about. Uh, two things. I think one. Um, I think there is going to be a cybersecurity attack on a major financial institution that succeeds mm-hmm. at some point in the coming years. That is horrifying, isn't and, it? And and I don't think I don't. I, I know institutions are worried about that. The very big institutions. I don't think we quite know what that's going to do to the average American when that happens. Mm-hmm. Is everything going to be in mattresses? Uh, I mean the 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 post crisis post cybersecurity yeah, event I think, I think situation. When, if we get a serious breach of a major institution, you know, a trillion plus institution, of which there are a whole bunch of them, right? Um, that is enough to freeze capitalism for a while, huh. I think. And so, I think it's going to be very interesting to see if that can be prevented, uh, and if, if it happens, how our economy is going to react to it. The other thing I worry about is you look at what happened in Saudi Arabia, where I think we're debating who, you know, who, those those drones that went in and blew lay, up the oil, blew up the oil mm-hmm. fields right before they were going public. That's not brain surgery, right? And I think that we look at 9/11 as like an impossible. You know, we've got all these measures in place to do all all these things to protect things, but at the end of the day, a kid in the garage with ten drones right. and the internet can cause a lot of damage. And I am I am concerned about that, what it does to the way we live with each other, you know, mm-hmm. from a personal level, you know, kind of your kids, grandkids, that kind of thinking. And from your specific question about the financial industry, what does it do to economics? Like, if you remember after 9-11, no one went to the movies. Everything no froze one went for to the mall. months. There was a cocoon effect for months. This, to me, would be much worse because people would be like, well, wait a second, you know, 9-11 at least requires some strategery and some breakdown and defenses,
1: but... And a it, physical yeah. event, not a cyber event.
2: Right. If, if we move into a world where there's a cyber event or, you know, some teenager with drones causes havoc in Times Square, I think that's going to be a cocooning effect that we're not, we've never thought about or are prepared for. I think those are the real the real threats to the economy that because you look at the economy is very resilient it can get through everything a burrito at chipotle is going to cost more 10 years from now than it does today Mm -hmm. nike shoes are going to cost more 10 years from now than they do today the market's going to go up to the right the way it always has but these kind of things are the kind of things that can change that that narrative Hmm. and so those are the things that i think about when i
1: think about existential threats to the norm huh fascinating and our final two questions a recent college grad comes to you and says they're interested in financial services as a career. What sort of advice do you give them? So first I'd say, you know, it's, it's
2: kind of like, show me your friends. I'll show you who you are. You know, you mm-hmm. give me the four people you hang out with the most. I don't need to meet you. I can pretty much tell you what what kind of guy you're like. F- don't, don't just go somewhere for experience. Try to get to a place that is aligned with the values that you're you're trying to do, right? So try to get, if you're, focused on being a fiduciary and fee-based or fee-only, get into an RAA. Just start there, right? right? Try to get into the right environment to begin with. Second, create separation between you and other people. And I think there's a couple things. One in the interview process, I'm always fascinated when somebody goes, well, I'm coming here for experience, or I'm coming here because I can think I learned this and that. Imagine... Uh, uh, somebody going to an NFL tryout and going. I'm here because I want to learn to get to get better
1: and get traded. Uh, I want, to, yeah,
2: <laughs> you want somebody who's going to come. I, here's how I can help you win. Right. You know, here's what I so talk about how you can help the place that you're coming into. Now, once you show up, um, you can differentiate yourself by going the extra mile. This is an industry where it's very easy to go the extra mile. I mean, right. there's a lot of things you can do more for your client or your employer, and. It's not hard to separate yourself from your peers if you are willing to stay a little later or take on a project or offer your help. I mean, even with hundreds of people, I am very aware of the people within creative planning that do that, Mm -hmm. especially those that are starting out. And so you tend to get judged in the first 30 days uh, when you're at work. The reality is we all judge each other in the first few seconds of seeing each other. There's a whole book about this called You've Got Three Seconds and... Basically the idea is when you meet somebody in a few seconds you've decided what you think of them and it's up to them to dig themselves out of that hole or they're going to go up or down later over time but you've kind of put you put an anchor on them. The same thing happens when you're employed. Don't grow into it. Come in hard. Come in strong. Hit the ground running. It's the same thing I try to do with a client. I try to give that client as much value up front as I can so they're going wow this is I made the right decision. You want the employer to feel the same way about
1: you. huh? And our final question What do you know about the world of investing and financial planning today? You wish you knew 25 or so years ago when you were first getting started.
2: Well, I mean, it took all the way until, you know, from 04 until 2017 to put all the pieces together. And it was really like hearing from clients, oh, I need this. I need that. And then going, well, I need to build a service to do that. So I always had a very strong bias against product. I don't want to own anything where I make more Mm -hmm. money. And a very strong bias towards service and value. How do I deliver more services? I wish... I had the vision in 04 to go, these were all the services that were needed and really found a way to build it out all on day one instead of taking you know, 14 years to build it. I I told our team at our last annual meeting that for the first time, I feel like I'm at the starting line. I feel like for the first time, I have an offense and a defense and an offensive coordinator and a defensive coordinator. Up until now, we've been playing with an incomplete, incomplete team, incomplete coaching. We, we didn't have all the pieces. We didn't have the special teams. We've got it all now, um, and you know I wish I had a time machine. I could go go have started that way.
1: But to be fair, you had you were path dependent. You had to travel that route in order to figure out what all those pieces were. That's true. Yeah. So, but that's still still quite fascinating. Thank you, Peter, for being so generous with your time. I've I've had you in here for two hours, and uh, most people fade by by sixty minutes in.
2: This was fun. You were great. I really enjoyed it, Barry.
1: We have been speaking with Peter Malouk. He is the CIO and president of Creative Planning. If you enjoy this conversation, well, look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes and you can see any of our previous 300 such conversations we've had over the past five years. Where where has the time gone? Um, We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Be sure and give us a delightful review on Apple iTunes. You can check out my weekly column on Bloomberg.com. Sign up for the daily reads at Ritholtz.com. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps me put together this podcast each week. Uh, Carolyn O'Brien is our audio engineer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. And Michael Boyle is our producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.